Let's have a word of prayer, and I'll kind of introduce where we're going this semester, all right? Our Father, we are so thankful that as we talk about sharing our faith during the semester, that just as Jesus prayed in John 17, that there will be those who, through the apostles, through the disciples, and those that were one through them, that would someday bring that gospel to us. And we thank you that we are sitting, we're standing here tonight because of your grace that was passed on through the message of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that as we will through this semester be reminded of our responsibility and our privilege to be a representative of Jesus Christ. We're not just preaching a system, we are speaking the words of the King. And so Father, I pray that as we go through this semester that we will not just learn knowledge, but be moved to share what you have given us so that what Christ prayed in John 17 would continue on for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Right. Sorry, brother. No problems. All right, before I forget, men, I'll say this now and I'll say it again, except you guys get a get-out-of-jail-free card because you're doing like a cafe community like forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. All right, if any of you men can help with chairs in the auditorium after we're done tonight, uh, we need to reset back up to that. So I'll try to remember to mention that again at the end. We're going to go through a book, which you should have. Some of them will look like this, or some of them will look like that. Because as they have updated the books, we ordered more, they came looking like that. So in case you look at that book and go, did I get the wrong book? Some of you have this, some of you have that. But the guts are the same. You know, when I think of going through this, and I'm sorry, as I look at it on my computer, it looks a lot better than this pukey green up here. I noticed when I put it up here, so I'm sorry if you don't like that. Come look at it on my laptop. It's a little better there. What I don't want this class to be as we go through the semester is thinking that this is a class on teaching us a system of how to share the gospel. Um, it's not a system of how to share the gospel. That's, that's really not our goal. And it's not really intended to be a, a guilt shot in the arm. Like, how many times can pastors preach on prayer and on sharing the gospel and every one of us will walk out feeling guilty because how badly are we at sharing the gospel and how infrequently we pray other than God get me out of this mess or provide for this. So prayer and sharing our faith are, quite frankly, some of the most difficult things that we are commanded but yet privileged to do. So in going through this class, discovering how to share your faith, our faith, the goal as we go through this together, it's intended to encourage us, to motivate us, to inform us about sharing our faith rather than thinking, all right, um, like say for example, how many of you have been through something like evangelism exploded? Any of you been through evangelism explosion? Yeah, I guess not, because you all have that look like. I have no idea what you're talking about. All right, so, Talia, you guys are maybe a couple years older than me, right? So I'm thinking you guys will lose it. Okay. Okay, evangelism explosion. Thank you, Gene, for rescuing me. All right. Evangelism explosion was very popular. Um, uh, I forget his name. He was the pastor there in Jacksonville, Florida. I can see his face. But he's the one that wrote the book, and like that, and other systems have been written to help us share our faith, because sometimes we go, all right, I get up to the door, and I'll, I'll confess, my nature is a shy guy, all right, so going door to door back in the day before JWs and Mormons kind of changed that strategy for us and everybody else, um, there were times I confess, all right, I'll just confess it right up here. I was kind of happy sometimes when I didn't answer the door. It's like, okay, good, I just stick the track in the door and go. It's like dropping a grenade and then running, you know. So that was a little easier because I thought, well, God, I'll just pray that they read it and then you'll do what you need to do because talking was a little more challenging. But admittedly, when we look back on that system of doing it door to door, there's nothing inherently wrong about that. But... How many times have we had people come to faith in Christ, and when they share their testimony at church, what do they say is the highest percentage of how they came to faith in Christ? It's almost invariably through somebody that they knew, a friend. Not this cold calling, selling Kirby vacuums at the door kind of thing. It is through relationships with somebody that they knew at work, in the neighborhood, or whatever the case may be. And so not to say that going door to door is bad or sinful or wrong or defunct, 
Um, obviously, when community began back in 2001, I still remember going with groups of people when we went out passing out flyers to introduce about this new church plant. So we passed out a bazillion of those things. Well, that wasn't sharing the gospel. That was introducing the start of the church. So when we're talking about how to share our faith, discovering how, I'm not looking at a system this semester or something to guilt us, but if you look in the table of contents, just flip in your book, go in two pages, one really one page, discovering how to share your faith, table of contents. And it really just gives you the three sections of where we're going with this. We're going to build a foundation, which is walking through some key things that we need to think through as we're sharing our faith. Secondly, preparing your skills. And I'm going to hit an issue tonight that if you were in my class the previous semester, we we talked about this just briefly related to sharing the gospel. And that is looking at our skills is, here's, here's what we can think, at least I thought this, that because I'm not a good talker with people, you know, like, I would never be able to be that Kirby salesman back in the day. You know, they would not want to, I wouldn't want to lug the dog on thing around to begin with, but then try to convince people to buy the thing. Well, again, when it comes right down to it, it's not our slick salesmanship that is the key. It is the power of the gospel through changed lives. And so when we talk about preparing your skills, it's not honing in the how do you make the kill? How do you make the sale? How do you finish the deal? That's really not where we're going. But we want to see there are some things we can, and part of that is embedding in our sharing of the gospel our life story. How did God bring us to this point? How did God do that? And that's what we're going to see. And then ultimately sharing our faith and looking at some difficult issues. Now, having said that, I just am curious, and if you, some of you that, like I said, you paid 10 bucks to come back and suffer through another class with me, thank you for doing that. Um, I'll give you your 10 bucks when you get out the door. One of the things I love to do in this class, partly because I just like interaction, it didn't go well for uh, eight years in China because Chinese don't interact. Teachers teach, students listen, that's the model of teaching. So I would ask questions, and it was always hilarious. Every time, I would ask a question, if there were 45 kids in the room or 100 kids in the room, every head would go, this. I mean, it was just a reflex reaction. They did not want to answer because that's just not their culture. Teachers teach, students listen. They don't question the teacher. They don't answer questions, all right? So I love to interact, and it took a while to almost like pulling teeth with them to do that. But in this class, I like to interact because we need to think through things. And that being said, our experiences probably are similar in some respects, but different. And part of what I wanted to start with and asking as we begin tonight is, when it comes to sharing our faith, what would you say are the main struggles that we have with sharing our faith? That you've had, or, and I'm, if I say if you've had this, it's like, well, then I don't want to give an answer. What would we have that are struggles that people have when it comes to sharing their faith? What are the most difficult things we face? Okay, the reactions of people, because they laugh at us, they think we're ridiculous, they think we are part of that that fringe, radical right that the liberal media has done so well to paint us as wackos. Um, What else? Thank you. What else besides what Gene just said? Absolutely. That was one of the things that horrified me going door to door, And, and, and sad to say, too often, knucklehead back in the days going to college and studying to be in ministry, I felt like a good visit was when I could answer the question, but that really wasn't what it was all about. Um, It was them coming to faith, but that's one of the things that scares us to death. What if they ask? Because one of the sections we're going to go through is answering objections, chapter 9. Now, we're not going to answer all the objections, but there are some key ones, you know, and and they're going to throw some zingers at you. And, and so we avoid maybe those confrontations because of that. What else? Losing respect at your job. I'm sorry? Like, not so much about my current job, my previous company, I was the only Christian. Oh, yeah. So, you know, a lot was really made of that. So, right. you know, I don't want to, like, lose footing in my job or that kind of thing. Yeah, because it's almost like, I mean, I hate to say it, this is a horrible way to put it, but it used to be the idea in culture because of... Uh, homosexuality was coming out. 
Now it's almost reversed. That's the norm, and for Christians to come out, that's the awkward one. We are the strange ones. Oh, you're one of them. You know, it used to be. I mean, I, I, I can remember back in the day how that was like divorce was the was the two things that we just don't talk about. We don't have. But now, today, we are the ones that if we say we are a Christian, immediately they've got things going through their minds about us before we've said a word. Or perhaps bosses will think certain things about us. And here's the flip side, too. There's nothing more frustrating than having somebody in your, in your work environment who says they are a Christian, and yet they are some of the worst workers at your place of work. And you're going, dude, my, you have tied my hands. I can't share the gospel because you're presenting something that is contradicting everything I want to say to these people. So that's part of our challenge. What else? Did you ever struggle with how to get started? Like, okay, I'm here, and hi, I'm from... You know, we can start with, hi, I'm so-and-so from such-and-such a church. That's going door-to-door, but when you're with somebody as a friend, where do we start? What were you saying, Dana? Fear of rejection. Yeah, fear of rejection. How am I going to get this person out out of here? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Them, them getting you out of the house? Yeah, and honestly, you know, part of it is I am not a big proponent of the whole door-to-door thing. I am more like a book that was written back in the 80s, maybe late yeah, in, the, in the 80s, called Lifestyle Evangelism, all right? It was a book to challenge the thinking that had gone into the 60s and 70s about here is the way to share the gospel. And it was all these books that a couple we're going to look at tonight in introducing this subject. But it was the way to do evangelism is you go door to door, you use this system, and you're guaranteed results. It's kind of like, you will get a sale if you do it our way. Well, that's just slightly arrogant and slightly theologically wrong, right? Because at the end of the day, I have no control over that. But I used to be frustrated about that. Going door to door, and I used to get frustrated, going, man, I'm not saying it right. Maybe I need to say it this way or do that. But when I come to the conclusions we're going to look at starting tonight, there is such relief and such encouragement with how we can think as we see people around us. Okay, so that being said, do you have something you're going to say, Stephanie, or are you just like... I was just going to say, you know, some people, I work with a lot of um, people who I feel are smarter than me, mm-hmm. doctors and whatnot. Yeah. So they seem to want to debate everything. Yes. And it's just not something I'm prepared to do in any means. So it just kind of makes me shy away from talking to them openly about it. Yes. Well, and, and here's where, and that's a great point, Steph, because that's where most of us are. I mean, I don't have a very many people here at the church that I need to share the gospel with. You. And I'm working with Pastor Ken and a couple of people like that. So my audience is a little different here. All right. But for most of us, I mean, I remember back in the day working at uh, Ford Wixom plant way back in the day where they built the Lincolns. And that's a tough crowd, you know, and different people. But we're going to look at some verses tonight at the end of our discussion that I really want to keep before us for all 12 weeks because these couple of verses have been a huge encouragement to me in light of what we see God intends to do through us. We may not be ready to answer all the questions just right, and we might even be intimidated by people that we work with. But what we can pray for is providential opportunities that God can use in their lives, in our work circumstances, or in their personal circumstances, that we have lived in such a way that when they do have a problem, they do have a situation, they're going to think we might be one of the first persons to come to. Because we're hardworking, we're honest, we are people who have maybe been through some hard things, but we've lived through it, and, and they go, how did you do that? All right, And that's what we're going to talk about at the very end tonight. Have, have any of you been in, you, some of you been in the last semester, how many of you have been in the Discovery Series, book one, two, three, or four? Anybody not been in that? Okay, let me just buzz through this really quickly to just kind of give you the overview of this book. I love the way they've done it because what they've done with this four-book series, and this is the last of the four books, is driving home something that Jim Hubbard, who is the, the administrator of Inner City Baptist School, uh, was pounding years ago right before we went to China, is critical thinking. And that is getting us to not just memorize and spit it out, but understand it and think it through. Well, these books are written that way, which, here's the bad news. 
that means there's a little homework every week. And you're like, dude, I'm going to dispensational class because I have no homework in that class. All right, forget it. I'm out of here. It's not hard. Matter of fact, I meant to print something. I will email it to all of you. Uh, normally, I'll have a half sheet that will give you the scoop of what we're going to go through because you can't do everything in one week. Uh, most of you are working in this room, so you're busy, but it is something to get us to think through it. And here's the process, very simply, and I'm just going to throw it all up there real quick rather than taking time to talk through it since many of you have been in it. Starting with the issue each week, what is the main issue that's in front of us? Once we've done that, it's kind of like a Sherlock Holmes mindset to studying God's Word. Rather than the teacher just telling you, here's what you're supposed to think. Hey, no problem. Here's what you're supposed to think. Instead, the idea is we look at the Scriptures, we pull out what it says, then we think through the issues, and then we connect it to our life. The problem is, oftentimes, we just sit and soak. We don't think. We don't process it. And really, this, this style of studying is a great way to push into our own personal study of God's Word. Because we can do with God's Word what we used to do with newspapers or magazines. We peruse it, you know, flipping pages. And, you know, so at, at noon, somebody says, so what you read in God's Word? I'm like, yeah, it's in the Old Testament, Psalms, and we don't know. Well, obviously, we forget. We get busy. But the whole point is we want to think through it and connect it to life. That's where it changes us. So the, the Discovery Series is intended to do that. Now, skipping on to where I really want to start with tonight. And, and that is, when we started tonight, we talked about some of the difficulties of sharing our faith. Sometimes it's an issue of confidence in the delivery. And, and I'm not, this class isn't about the delivery. Sometimes it's an issue of what do I share, and it's, it's a content issue. Uh, sometimes it's just, um, it, it can be misunderstanding of what we're supposed to do when we share our faith, and really who our audience is to be, and how we approach that audience. So one of the things I wanted to do, and some of you that were my class before, I'm going to pass this out, we're going to just talk through this, but do this for me. And there's nothing that I, I, I know that this is a mistake because as soon as I hand it to you, you start reading it. Can you do this? I can't say flip it over because there's something on both sides. So if I say flip it over, then you'll flip it over and read the other side. So when I pass this to you, if you could just kind of just, as much as it's going to drive you nutty to not read it, please don't read it yet. Let me just make a couple comments. Yeah, so I'm looking around here. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I was just I was just gonna turn around and see how many eyes were looking here. I'm just doing a sneaking down there looking, all right. Um, you know, when it when it comes to the gospel, our sharing of the gospel, really there's two things that we draw into this, and that is we're talking about evangelism, and oftentimes, and I'm gonna just throw this up here, there's a problem of our message and a problem of our method. Can you all see that? Yes and no, okay. And that is, sometimes our message is not correct, we're not, we're not communicating what is accurate, that doesn't mean we're not saying all the right words, but maybe we're not saying them biblically correct, and also method, because there is a, a means of delivering that message that can be counterproductive, quite frankly. And so that's what we want to look at. Um, and as we're thinking through, uh, I just wanted to highlight a few of the problems that have been out there that still exist in Christian circles today. How many of you remember the publication Sword of the Lord? Okay? Okay. Tell me what you remember about the publication of Sword of the Lord. What was what was highlighted in every issue of the Sword of the Lord? Do you remember? And you're like, I remember my grandpa had like a huge stack of beside his reply. And and here's the Sword of the Lord was this publication about ministries and pastors, but I'm not kidding. Every issue was highlighting the fastest growing churches in America who had the most baptisms, who had the most salvations, who had the most this, this, and this. I definitely remember that. Yeah, and it was it was it was the bragging tabloid of Christian circles. It really was. And and we look at it now and go, how are we so blind and so ridiculously drawn into that? But we were. We were sucked into the numbers game and we were sucked into the notches on our belt and, and we've gotten so many uh, salvations. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I can't remember if I told this first semester. I may have. I was a uh, assistant pastor than the pastor in Maryland, 
And right when I was working with the youth group at this church in Maryland, we had a friend had invited this evangelist to come and speak, and so he spoke with the young people as well. And I'll, I'll never forget, he's, we're speaking at this, po- at this uh, pavilion outside with the teens, and he's talking in his message, and I mean, honestly, I about fell on the ground, because I'm like, dude, that just cannot be true. So he, he begins to tell how, the, when he, before he went into evangelism, he was a pastor. And that for three years in his church, before he became an evangelist, every Sunday, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, somebody trusted Christ for three years running, all right? I mean, so it's like, you know, so of course, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that'll knock anybody's socks off, even if it's a teenager who really doesn't care. They just want to know when we're going to eat, all right? So he's saying that, but I'm going, are you for real? I mean, I, obviously, I, I just... I was really, I'm always skeptical of evangelists who talk numbers and talk stories that sound like that can't be true because it probably wasn't true. So I did the quick math in my head, which I, math wasn't my forte, but I could at least go, all right, so 50 weeks. Let's just do 50 weeks times three. So that means do the quick math on just 50. So that's 150, 150, 150. So that means 450 people. All right, wow, that church had to be big. So I didn't say anything to him, but I did ask him the question afterwards. So tell me about your church. How big was your church? You know, before you went into evangelism, he said we had about 125 people. And I'm going, I I didn't say anything, but just in my mind, I'm just like, that just confirmed exactly what frustrated the crud about that illustration you just gave. And that is, you had this idea of numbers, 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 and somebody got saved every service for three years running. It was revival. And I'm like, well... I hate to tell you, and I was a young guy, and he was an older guy, so I wasn't going to do the, let me just straighten you out on this. I don't buy it. Because in the end of the day, if these are true disciples, as we're going to see from John 6 tonight, there is a continuing on. There is an adding to the body of Christ. There isn't just a notch in the belt, right? And, and that's part of it. So some of you are still just like, when's he going to let you look at this thing? All right, let me let you look at it in a second here. All right. I'm just going to throw these pictures up here. Some of you may have seen these books before. Go to the part of your paper that talks about the message. The message. Evangelism, our message, the wrong message. Some of you remember Robert Schuler, who was the pastor of the Crystal Cathedral in California. All right, He was the slick pastor and the beautiful church and beautiful everything. And, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just throw a word out there that whether you like it or not, this is the truth. The guy's a heretic, all right, and of the worst sort. Uh, and, and I may shock some of you to hear that word, but if you read what he has written and have heard some of the things he has said, I'll give you a simple example of this, of him. And, and he was, just so you know, his background was connected with, and it went right out of my head, uh, power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale. All right, that was the guy that made the biggest impact on Robert Schuller. He went to seminary, but it wasn't seminary that motivated his thinking. It was that guy that changed his thinking about church. And it was all about, it became all about people thinking positively about themselves and people being happy with themselves and really the whole self-esteem, self-image. So here's what he said, and I won't read the whole thing. You can read it, but look at the bottom. This is from 1997. This is just simple. An example of something he's, he would say. He said, I don't think, this is in the bold at the bottom, I don't think that anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelistic enterprise than the unchristian, uncouth strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. Okay, I hope that raises at least one eyebrow, maybe both, all right? Uh, because here's here's the just God honest truth. If somebody doesn't see that they are sinful and wretched and wicked, they're never going to go to Christ. They're never going to go to to the answer. And and his whole idea and his message was, and this is what made his church so popular. It is, I mean, he matter of fact. Here's an interesting thing. Two guys that have gone and spent a lot of time with him to get advice. A couple mega churches. Can you just guess who those guys might be? Just think of a couple big mega churches in America right Joel now. Osteen. What's that? Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen. <laughs> guess that one quick. I knew you would. And Rick Warren. 
Those two guys spent time with Robert Shuler to find out, so what did you do? And if you look at some things that have come out, obviously with Joel Osteen, he's like a disciple of Robert Shuler all over, but worse, because his wife's preaching stupid things too, if you've seen the things that I know what I'm talking about, all right? So the whole point is, when we're coming to the message, we've got to make sure that we are also careful with what we say, because I have seen tracks. And I, I was trying to find it. My files are everywhere, and boxes are everywhere. I don't know where this file is, so it's somewhere. I had a track, and it says something like you're special, but that's not the title, because there are ones that say you're special, and it's a good track. There's another one that says it. And in the body of the track, here's what it's saying. It's essentially going on to say, and I, I would agree that man is made different than animals. We're made in the image of God. So we are unique and we are different in our relationship to God because we're made in His image. But they take that and that tract and they say, you're so special, this is why Jesus Christ died. He died because you are special. Now that sounds good and that honestly sounds kind of right. And I say kind of. The reality is Jesus Christ didn't die because you and I are special. He died because we are sinful. When we become his child, we are incredibly special to him. But on this side of the cross, we're a sinful wretch. It's what we are. And so I say that to say with tracks that we use, we need to watch what we pass out. We need to make sure that it's not saying something more than what Scripture is saying. That doesn't mean that people aren't special. That doesn't mean that I walk up to somebody and say, you wretched, sinful, wicked person. Well, no, I mean, that's something that God's going to have to show them. And one of the ways he best does that as neighbors, as co-workers, as going to coffee shops and grocery stores is not by us saying you are a wretched, sinful, wicked person, but by our lives being incredibly different than their lives. And we can't do like the 60s and 70s where what made Christians look like Christians was short hair and dressing up. Um, because, okay, there was Woodstock and the Beatles and everything else, and so there was long hair and beards and everything else, and facial hair was sinful back in the 60s and 70s. Now it's like, it's okay, all right? It really biblically was never not okay. But in our culture, that was part of the issue. So when we're trying to think through the message, we've got to be very careful that, even with tracts and how, what we are saying, we are accurately representing what Scripture does say about people. Jesus Christ didn't die for them, because they were special. Okay, that may feel uncomfortable to us. He died because we are sinful. But when we become his child, yeah, we are incredibly special because we are adopted into his family. Jesus tells us, we see in Paul's writings, we are going to reign with him. This isn't just, uh, all right, you're in and you're back in the back 40. You're reigning with the king. And you're his mouthpiece right now. We are an ambassador speaking the words of our king. So our message is important. But let's flip over to the backside, our method. Some of you that were in our class first semester talked about this book, Soul Winning Made Easy. Okay, Just think of that title. Would that title even clue you to that could be a problem? Because um, you know, just by the things you shared tonight, you already acknowledged that soul winning isn't easy. And honestly, and, and, and I hope I, I, I'm not trying to... Um, offend anybody or say anything that would make you feel upset. I'm not a big fan of using the word soul winner. Um, and that, you know, the, the verse that has been used in the book of Proverbs, he's that wins souls is wise. I'll tell you, that's not what that verse is talking about in the Old Testament. It's not talking about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But somehow we took that from the King James Version and that we spill all this stuff out. And the word soul winning literally comes from that verse. But here's the truth. Uh, as long as I've been a Christian, I have never won a soul to Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how did you get to work here in the church now? Because we need to get ready. Um, and neither did you. Because at the end of the day, it is all of God. And at best, we are his faltering mouthpiece. He has chosen to use us. And, in, and honestly, when we sometimes think, I mean, I can remember times feeling like, man, I just did really good with that person at the door. You know, how stupid was that? I mean, I look back and go, wow, that's really stupid. Because at the end of the day, oftentimes it's not the best way we do it. It's sometimes by things that God uses in a whole different way, back door with the gospel. 
And here's part of the wrong method. C.S. Lovett wrote this book, Soul Winning Made Easy. And, and here is, I, I read this first semester, and I'll just read it again. You bear with me. Here's part of what he says in this book. And this book was groundbreaking, and honestly, this book still influences churches to today. And you can still get on the website and order this dude's book. You get on the internet, you can see the dude that wrote this book. No, I'm sorry, that's not true. I'm thinking of drawing the net. <coughs> Buddy Murphy. I don't know if C.S. Lovett is still alive. That's a good question. All right, here's what he says. I mean, this is just incredible. The trained soul winner can bring his prospect to a decision for Christ. There is no middle ground as he moves this in the middle. I'm sorry. He moves with surety and deafness right up to the point of salvation. It is his conversation control that makes this possible. He knows exactly what he's going to say each step of the way and can even anticipate his prospect's responses. He's able to keep the conversation focused on the main issue and prevent unrelated materials from being introduced. The controlled conversation technique is something new in evangelism and represents a real breakthrough in soul winning. All right. If I didn't know that this book was about soul winning, that paragraph is about soul winning, if I read that now in 21st century 2015, I might think we're talking about a cult. Because that's exactly what JWs do when they come to your door and Mormons. They have taught their people, here's what to say, here's how to say it, even how to avoid if they want to get you off over here, here's how to get back over to here. I mean, here is the system, and yet we do, we've done the same thing. We think, all right, we control the conversation and we control the result. Here's what he goes on to say. Here's how you finish the deal. Here's how you make the sale by bringing someone to faith in Christ, and this is just amazing. Lay your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder or arm, and with a semi-commanding tone of voice say to him, bow your head with me. Note, do not look at him when you say this, but bow your head first. Out of the corner of your eye, you will see him hesitate at first. Then as his resistance crumbles, his head will come down. Your hand on his shoulder will feel the relaxation, and you will know when his heart yields. Bowing your head first causes terrific psychological pressure. It's like, are you for real? You know. But honestly, you may think that this is just insane. But that book changed evangelism, and it wasn't just that book. Charles Finney, some of you know from church history... His, the, the whole idea of walking the aisle, making decisions publicly, was started in the, the revival tent move, movement. Charles Finney was the mover of that and making public decisions that really was never a part of the church. This was really a continuation of that thinking. And whether we recognize it or not, that method was man-centered and man-driven, but was not the power of God. And so the danger of that was a boatload of people going through churches, going through things, making a profession of faith, but never darkening the doors of a church or doing it for a few months and then never, ever coming back. But they prayed the prayer. So they're in. And I have so much of Scripture that says you measure salvation not in a profession, but in the possession of that faith that continues on. In other words... I may have prayed a prayer on a Sunday night back in 1966 before a number of you were alive. Um, and that didn't guarantee a thing. But time measures the genuineness of faith because time measures whether I continue in that faith according to the book of Hebrews and many other places. So in this book... And also drawing the net. I saw this book, Drawing the Net, back in 1981. I was on a pastor's internship program, and that book was introduced to us in that internship program. And I'm not kidding. It was it was a seal of the deal. It was almost like a salesman's book. Um, I, I tried to find multiple sites, trying to find a, like on Amazon, where you can look in the table of contents, but I you couldn't see it. So I could never find the table of contents, and mine is buried somewhere in my files. But it's the same idea, and that is... If we have in our minds that I have some way, a system, a, a presentation way that can guarantee results, then quite frankly, we don't realize in our in our zeal to reach people with the gospel, we've gone broke. That's the only way I can put it. We've gone broke. Because in our quest to reach people, and I'll just say this. This is just a broad statement. Historically... Most problems theologically in church history, theological problems, are often rooted in practical desires to do something better in the church or to move something forward. 
Yeah, do we want to reach more people with the gospel? Yeah, why wouldn't we? But in that positive desire, we then start stepping around Scripture to to move that forward. Uh, And so then we end up with books like these. Now, here's where um, it it changes everything for us when we look at one chapter tonight, John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles... If you don't, maybe you got it on your phone. I'm trying to find where I set mine. Yes, here. Yes, it is. John chapter 6. Because you may be like, does he ever use a scripture? Yes. Tonight was really introduction because this book, this series, is built on us working through something in advance. So I'm losing them left and right. We're having people just leaving. It's, I heard there's better options out there, free food, whatever. No. <laughs> there was. John chapter 6. I just want to lay out some things because we'll, we'll probably hit some of these things through the course of the semester, but just kind of, I'll be honest with you, I'm playing my cards on day one. All right, Part of my cards on day one where we need to think, even though it may be hard to think this way sometimes, um, we may struggle with the ramifications of this. John chapter 6. Let me just throw a few things up here as we walk through it. John chapter 6. Look, if you would, at verse 2. I'm not going to read the whole chapter in case you're worried. There's 60 60 plus verses. Here's one thing we see in this this storyline that goes in John chapter 6 is the crowds. And it says in verse 2, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. One thing we see over and over in the Gospels, you say, well, this is just an obvious thing, but there were large crowds following Jesus. Probably one of the most powerful uh, messages that that is recorded in the Gospels is in Luke 14. Let me just kind of picture this for you for a second. Let me just turn this thing off and put everything aside for a second. Jesus in Luke chapter 14 when I get to believe it, I think it's verse 25, it says there was a large crowd following Jesus, and it says, and he turned around and he spoke this message to them. And in verses 26 through 33 of Luke 14, three different times he says, if this isn't true, you cannot be my disciple. If this isn't true, you cannot be my disciple. So he's got a big crowd following him. He's got, in a sense, a mega church following him. But instead of going, this is great, look at the success, he turns around and says something to them that quite frankly turns it from a crowd to his faithful few. And everybody else is gone, just like what happens here. I mean, he he literally, that's what Luke records, he turns around to a crowd but says something that will automatically thin the crowd. Because one of the things he says is, if you don't hate your father, mother, brother, sister, you cannot be my disciple. And you're like, well, that sounds cult-like, you know. But then Matthew 10 helps us better understand. It's not that you hate your mother, brother, father, sister. I mean, when I had two sisters, so my younger one I called the brat. The older one was five years old, and she was smart, way smarter than I was ever going to be. So, yeah, okay, so maybe I can't say I hate it because I grew up in a, in a culture where you never said you hated anything other than vegetables. That was okay, you know. But when I come to this, when I come to wrestling through this, it is saying... To follow and be my disciple, there must be a love for Christ, for God, that you're willing to step aside from your family. And I'm telling you, somebody who's a Muslim who comes to faith in Christ understands that in a way that we will never understand. Because for some of them, it means their life. For some of that, it means their family hunt them down, find them, and if their spouses come to faith in Christ, they'll kill both of you. And they'll kill your kids. They'll do whatever it takes. And, and so we don't understand that, but the people of Jesus' day and, and, and the majority of people in the world, quite frankly, that come to faith in Christ that are not in our culture face this because of what Jesus is saying. So here in, in John chapter 6, Jesus has large crowds following him. Throughout this chapter, it references it, but if you notice in verse 2 that I just read, they were following him because of the signs that he was doing on the sick. So they were, just like people today, They're there for the show. They're there for the free food. They're there for the tricks. They're not there to hear the truth because once that crowd follows him and goes across the sea when he goes to Capernaum, he then, in interaction with them, begins a message 
that changes everything for this crowd. And that's why I say Jesus' message thinned the crowds. Because if you go, that was the beginning of the chapter, look at verse 66. This is how it ends. Instead of going from a mega church to a bigger church, verse 66 says, After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Alright? So something happened between verse 2 and verse 66 that changed everything. No longer are there large crowds. There's a mess of people running for the door, just like Luke 14 probably played out when he gave that message as well. So what was it that he said? Well, tonight we don't have time to go through all of Luke, uh, John chapter 6, but I want to hit a couple of key highlights that are at the heart of where we need to go in our thinking as we start the semester when it comes to sharing the gospel. Method, message, mindset, whatever you want to think, this is where it's got to start. When we think of what Jesus said that turned away the crowds, <coughs> look, if you would, beginning in verse, uh, John chapter 6, verse 35. Before we get to verse 37, look at verse 35. This is the first of seven I am's in the book of John. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and life. I am the light of the world. This is the first of those seven. So in verse 35, Jesus is talking to them about the bread that comes down from heaven as Moses gave it, talking about manna. And then they say in verse 30, verse 34 at the very end, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I am this bread of life. And I'll admit, if we read, matter of fact, go on down to verse, go on down to verse 51 to 58. I won't read all of that for sake of time, but he says in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. All right, if you're out there with him, and you've seen the show, and you've had the free food, and he says that, doesn't it seem a little creepy at that point? Um, because obviously he is saying something that is going to require the power of God for their eyes to be open to what he is saying. It's something that they're not going to get. It's something that they're going to go, what in the world is he talking about? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. What is he talking about? Well, here's the key. Not that they sit and listen to this message and they replay the tape over and over and they go, oh, I figured it out. Because the truth is, they would never figure it out if they had recorders back then. They would never figure it out. Here's why. Go back to verse 37. Verse 37 I, I remember preaching uh, the last half of this verse, which is a mistake, the last half of this verse a couple of times at a rescue mission in Detroit uh, back in the day. Um, as a matter of fact, I think it still exists. It's the, um, uh, I want to say New Life, New Life Rescue Mission. And um, we used to go there with the teens, take the young people there. And I remember preaching John 6.37. He the, and I, I would all, always, because this is the positive part, you want to focus to people who need the gospel, is at the end of verse 37, it says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, that sounds like a great offer. But if I only say that, I haven't given the whole message. Because what, what does the beginning of verse 37 say? All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and he that comes to me, I will no wise cast out. Well, my point is, in these verses here, verse 37, 39, 40, 45, let's just walk through them very quickly and see what Jesus says. Jesus has said in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Uh, look down if you would at verse 39. Verse 39. Sorry, I'm trying to find it. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Go down to verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Uh, look down, if you would, at verse 44. Verse 44 says, sorry, it's hard to find these numbers here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then finally, down in verse 65. Again, he says this in verse 65. And he said, And this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So, multiple times, Jesus, in the midst of saying, I'm the bread of life, and saying, Eat my blood, or eat my flesh and drink my blood, something he has said that they obviously missed and that we can easily miss is this reality right here. 
and I, I, I want to draw, drive home two, two tent pegs of where we're going this semester and our thinking, where we have to start. The final decision for any man's salvation is always rooted in the gracious initiative of God, not the presumed initiative of man. And I say that because very simply, of all the verses in Romans 3, pick out one in there and it says, Paul's describing all the badness about us and then he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But prior to that, he said, there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks after God. In other words, you and I are here tonight by the grace of God, but we would never have chosen it. We would never have chosen it. We would have always chosen our own way. And the son said multiple times that day, if you come to me, I will never cast you out. But the only way you'll come to me is if the father does that. The father draws you. The father brings you. In other words, as somebody put it this way, and I think it's a great way, the whole history of redemption is the gathering of the redeemed body or the calling of a bride for the son as a love gift from the father. In other words, what he is saying is, we are the bride of Christ. Uh, my son just got married December 13th last year, all right? So we had, this was our first one to marry off, all right? It was the cheap one. We got two daughters, all right? That was the cheap one, all right? But, you know, you're presenting the bride. I mean, that is, that is the best part. I mean, the guy, the groom, I mean, come on, we're just along for the ride. Now, obviously, that, that illustration breaks down a little bit because the groom is Christ. But we are that love gift the Father is giving. He is giving this body, this bride, this, according to Ephesians chapter 5, this glorious church, this beautiful church, which is not a building. It's the people being given to the Son from the Father. But it's all an initiative of the Father. So here's where a part of we can take heart when it comes to sharing the gospel. I don't have to be slick at it. Matter of fact, it's not that I want to be bad at it, but if I muff it up, as long as I am taking the truth and correct with the truth, God uses the truth. And it's not ever going to be my slick salesman or my method that makes the difference. It is, as Jesus said, the ones that come, come because the Father drew them, called them. It's all of God's initiative. It's not of our initiative. Here's the second thing second thing to consider, and then I'll pause, because I usually like to ask questions if you have questions along the way. The last part of this we see in John 6 at the very end, which we won't take time to look at it, is, as a matter of fact, just go down to this one part, verse 66 that I read earlier. It says, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Um, one of the things we have to understand is, even though John used the word disciples, that they no longer went after him, there were at least three different ways the word disciple is used in the New Testament. One of them was to describe the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples. Another one is to use to describe a true believer. But the most basic way of using that word is just simply a follower, somebody who followed. And quite frankly, most of these people were just followers. They were along for the ride to see who this latest teacher was, who this guy was, what was he saying, what was he doing. So in the truest sense, in the most basic sense, they were followers. They were not true believers. They were not, as we would say today, not Christians. So when he says that, John is not saying, well, these were believers who then lost their salvation or ran from God. He is saying that these people who were part of that crowd who were following turn and went the other way going, ah, it's just way over my head, no thanks. And it will be. I mean, it, it, the gospel will always be way over our head and beyond our reach until the grace of God, 2 Corinthians 4 says, the light of the gospel of Christ shines into hearts and minds that are blinded by Satan. And when that light shines in, that's when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's when we are changed. So, when we look at these verses, I because we don't have time to go through all of them, I would simply say this. Only genuine disciples will accept the sovereign hand of God in the work of salvation. In other words, it is God's hand that brought every one of us to faith in Jesus Christ. Not because he figured, hey, there's some good people down the road who will choose me, so I'm going to choose them. I remember, and this is a hard one, uh, this whole discussion of election. 
this is not where this class is going tonight, and it can, it can really get off on a rabbit trail for like weeks talking about that. But I will admit, like, and, and hate to put it in the same sentence because it sounds like I could say it, I'm the same as these people. People like C.H. Spurgeon. You know who C.H. Spurgeon was? You know who uh, George Mueller was? George Mueller was the one that started the orphanages. It was also, we always know him as the guy that started orphanages around the same time as C.H. Spurgeon, but he was also a pastor, all right? He saw the needs of children kind of like um, Oliver Twist, all right? Oliver Twist, I mean, poor kids, street kids, that sort of thing. That's part of how that ministry started. These two men, like many other men, who were much smarter, much more knowledgeable with God's Word, much more profoundly used by God, both write in their writings of how they struggle with the doctrine of election and seeing that God is sovereign. God and God alone is the final say of who becomes believers and who does not. In other words, it's not up to us. It's not because we chose him and he said, well, glad, I'm glad you chose me. Now you're in, you know. Um, scripture is very clear. I would never choose him. Sinners don't choose God. Sinners run from God. So when we come to that, those genuine disciples there in John 6, verse 66, the reason they didn't follow wasn't just simply because uh, they didn't like it, but it's because God had, had, not, had not at that point reached down and drawn them and given them to the Son for faith in Christ. Now, having said all that, which I've been talking for quite some time, pause for a second. Does any of that feel uncomfortable? Any of that feel like, hmm, I got a question about that. Where we've gone so far, and I know probably I laid it out too firm. So you're like, "Are you kidding me? Am I going to ask a question about that?" <laughs> um, I, I remember. I remember to this day. I don't remember what day it was. I remember sitting in systematic theology class back in the day, going to seminary, and I remember going through the subject of election. And I, I remember. What day of the week it was? I remember the guy behind me always fell asleep in systematic theology class, and then he ended up with magna cum laude. I'm like, how did he do that? Um, but I, I remember the time when the doctrine of election and God's sovereign hand of it—it's like the light went on. And the light that went on for me was when I understand that it's all of God and initiated by God. That's the only way that grace makes sense. In other words, if if it's of you and God, then it's kind of like a deal. It's kind of like we brokered this, all right? But if it's all of God, and I don't have anything that gives me a reason for God to choose me, then that makes grace make all the sense in the world. And then I walk away going, why me? Why any of this? And, and there will be people who will say, but it's unfair, and you can just run with it. Uh, the people that God doesn't choose. But here's the reality. If God created beings, and this is where Romans 9 comes in, and we don't have time to deal with that tonight, the clay can't really say much to the potter because the potter can do whatever he wants for whatever purpose, whether it's Pharaoh, you, me, or Adolf Hitler. All right? He can use them for whatever. Could he have stopped Adolf Hitler from exterminating 6 million plus Jews? He could have. Could he have stopped four uh, planes uh, from crashing on 9-11? He could have. Um, there's a lot of things God could do. We don't always understand it all, but he has his sovereign purposes, and even when it comes to salvation, he's doing that with us. So for you and I, we've got to start with this, and I, I won't even take time to deal with it, because you can't even read it, because it's too dark down there, but if I start with God's sovereignty and bringing people to salvation, that gives me huge motivation to pray and to pray more because it's God doing it, not me. That doesn't mean I need to learn another system and read another book. I mean, honestly, I'm, I was almost a little squeamish about teaching this subject. It's like teaching on prayer. We can read another book on prayer, but then we still stink at praying. I'm going to just be blunt. We can read another book on sharing the gospel, but then we don't do it. So that's my frustration. So I'm gonna get, I wanted to get as practical as I could tonight then. That being said, if God is the one that does it, here's what I just throw up, that these verses are going to be with us every week for the rest of the semester because these verses have been profoundly impacting my life. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul asking this church to pray this for him 
and his work of the ministry. And admittedly, he did incredible things. But he would say at the end of the day, 1 Corinthians 15.10, For by the grace of God I am what I am, but it was not me. I worked hard, I labored hard, but at the end of the day it was God's grace that did this. Well, here's what Paul asked this church. Continue to continue steadfastly in prayer. Praying what? Verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us, here's the key things, that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ in which I am in prison and that I make, make it clear. So we have the word that and that in verse 4. Both of them, the way Paul wrote, was saying, this is why I'm asking you to pray. That God would open the door so we have an opportunity to share the gospel, even if the people are ten times smarter than us. Or maybe not as smart as us, because sometimes that's hard as well. We are educated, we know how to talk at their level, or whatever the case may be. Pray that God may open a door and that I may make it clear and know how to speak it. And and I, I, I say that to take us then practically to this, because this is where I just end with four quick questions to throw at us. Um, God has put each of us in different neighborhoods with different people. Uh, been talking with uh, Sierra about the moms and tots, and, and maybe some of you don't know who Sierra is. Sierra Hepburn's library look looking around like, we're Sierra. This is Sierra. Sierra Mist. All right, if you get her email address, it's Sierra Mist. Um, She's going to take over and help with the moms and tots, going to the playgrounds and, and hanging with one another, but also getting to meet other moms who might be at the playground, who the common denominator is you got kids and you got to get out of the house and you're going crazy. But in the midst of that, perhaps having an open door for the word to share the gospel. Now, fathers, you're not going to the playground unless you're Mr. Mom, all right? But wherever God has put us, here's the questions we have to ask. Do you know the names of those in your sphere of influence? And I, I wish Jenny Jones was here, but it was kind of cool. About uh, two or three weeks ago, she came running up to me at church, and she goes, I know the names of my neighbors now, uh, some neighbors next door, because we helped her move into her house over on Euclid and Allen Park, a bunch of guys. And one of the things I talked about, we talked about evangelism, is how do we pray for those and pray for a door for the Word? Because here's the assumption. If I don't know my neighbors' names, behind me, alongside me, in front of me, I can safely assume I'm not praying for them. Because I don't even know their names. And if I'm not praying for them, then I can safely assume I'm not really looking in terms of how to reach them with the gospel. So I start with, very simple, do you know the names of those in your sphere of influence? Obviously your co-workers, that's an easy one. You know their names. So we start very simple. Pray that God opens the door for the word. That doesn't mean a way to shove the gospel in their face, but looking for circumstances that God brings to your workplace, to your neighborhood, that you can then, through that reaction or action, be a way to share the gospel. I'm still waiting for my neighbor across the street, uh, Jerry, who before he went to China, uh, I can remember multiple times, him coming home so drunk at night that he could not get in his front door. And you get in his house, and it was so dark in the house. We had one TV in the, in the room when he was in there. And I remember he couldn't, I'd have to, I'd come across the street, it was at night, and help to get him in the door and in the house. Well, he's sober now, but I'm not just happy that he's sober and he's driving good and everything else. Hopefully now I get a chance to get to know him better and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, because that's really what he needs. So I know who Jerry is. But do we pray for those people? And let me just say this. We sometimes want to live in a neighborhood. Let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. We want to live in a neighborhood that doesn't have barking dogs and cruddy neighbors, right? Right? That's a good neighborhood. And if we got cruddy neighbors or barking dogs, what do we do? We build a big fence because we want to be away from them. But yet God has put us there. And you're like, well, we can sell the house. Sell the house. Wherever God puts you. That's where it's put you because God has at times put those difficult people in our lives so that in the difficulty of the situation, we can show a different response when we want to do what everybody else does. You're an idiot. You're a cruddy neighbor. Turn the music down. Quit partying. Whatever. Yeah, okay, if your kids are waking up because of their music, all right, we talk to them. But also this. Do we realize that the difficult circumstances you face in your sphere of influence are there for gospel reasons? Both of these are. It's like, 
It's like John Piper saying, don't waste your cancer. Don't waste whatever bad thing has happened in your life. Don't waste it because God has put it there so that he can open a door for the work. And here's the reality as we close the door on our time tonight. Only God can open that door. And only God can change a heart. But where we have to step up to the plate is not learning a new method or a new system or reading another book on how we can do it better. It starts with prayer. And it continues with prayer. And we have failed if we don't pray. Now, that's not to walk out guilty tonight. That's to walk out hopefully motivated, going, you know what? It may be cold, but maybe when I see my neighbor out shoveling, I'm going to go out and help them shovel or do my snowblower and help them so that at least it's just like, hey, now I know your name, and now I can start praying. So when the snow thaws and the weather gets warm, I might get a chance to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's where God is blessed. Right. Father, thank you for the patience of these folks here tonight. But most importantly, we thank you for the amazing patience that you have shown with us so that we, in your grace, came to you because you drew us and you gave us to Jesus. Father, I pray that you will help us to be people who pray so that we will be people that can see the glory of God 